Welcome to the T's and C's. Tisa and Chantel. Also known as the Terms and Conditions. Welcome to a, another episode of The Reflection, our weekly COVID-19 sociological musings. This week we are really, really excited to be joined by our good friend, legendary scholar, multiple Survivor Society alumni, Mikola Benson. That's it, I could go home now, can't I? <laughs> We're really excited to have Mikola here because she's one of the scholars that brings the facts and analysis. We definitely need that, particularly me and T, because sometimes we go off on a tangent. But anyway, um, Mikola is going to be talking about an article that she wrote in Discover Society, um, a month ago called A Good Citizen for Pandemic Times. Now, I strongly recommend you read this you read this article before you carry on listening. So pause the, pause the recording now, go into the episode notes and read the article and then listen to the brilliant Mikla talk about how her foresight basically came true or is becoming true. <laughs> <laughs> it is very, very depressing. Tell us a bit about your analysis of The Good Immigrant for Pandemic Times. Oh, not the good immigrant. Have I been saying the good immigrant? You've been saying the good citizen. But I think it's really, you know, I think the the confusion of the two is understandable. And I think it's a kind of a good and important thing to point out that you can never really talk about citizenship in this country anyway, without talking about immigration. Because the two have over time, in terms of how they've developed in law, they've developed coterminously, so together, basically, Whereas one defines who is to be included, the other defines who is to be excluded. So from that point of view, it could have also been labelled the good migrant for for pandemic times as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. So so, so I don't think you need to worry about that too much. Okay. (laughs) I think, I mean, basically, I wrote this article um, very close, very soon after we'd locked down in the UK. And... I think part of it was to do with providing myself with an outlet for some of the things that I was thinking about at the time, Um, particularly because I've been working on this project um, about the kind of the future politics of Britishness in this country and kind of questions of, of citizenship, migration and belonging. And I really wanted to do something that helped me to make sense of what I was reading, which at that stage seemed a little bit kind of removed from from the corona crisis, um, and kind of bring that to what I thought about what was happening through the ways in which kind of people who were breaching lockdown or were, were kind of being perceived as breaching lockdown were being kind of characterised. And it seemed quite obvious to me that in casting some people as kind of bad, bad citizens for lockdown, i.e. the people who, for whatever reason, um, were out on the streets, were not social distancing, were not playing by the rules that have been so clearly laid out by the British government. <laughs> that is a very tongue in cheek comment, just in case anyone couldn't pick up on my sarcasm. Um, that we needed to actually pause for thought. I mean, I don't know about you, but um, I, I was seeing on kind of neighbourhoods, uh, Facebook groups, on kind of mutual aid groups. I was hearing kind of when I was out and about, you know, kind of you could feel people bristling, like, should that person be here? Should they not be here? And it struck me immediately that just as we've seen a situation where the general public gets co-opted in order to report immigration breaches, 
that actually they'd already started to internalize an idea that they could also judge who was allowed to be in public space. And that really bothered me for lots of reasons. The speed with which that had kind of taken hold, alongside obviously the narrative about how wonderful wonderful everyone um, is in terms of like, you know, coming together in times of crisis. The other side of that was also the, you know, kind of deployment of judgments, which are moral judgments. And we have to be really, really clear about this, about who was behaving in the right way and along the lines of the values of the political community uh, at this point in time. See, Michael, I think that's interesting because it kind of takes you back to, again, at the start of the lockdown, there was a video doing the rounds, as it does right now, of a guy driving somewhere in London, I think East Ham, and he was saying, look at all these immigrants, look at all the immigrants, they're not social distancing, they're like they're not us, they don't understand what the rules are, and clearly demarcating that these this other doesn't know the rules or what the rules are to be in this country. And um, I think one of the reports I kind of read a couple of weeks ago about the World Health Organization about what could happen in pandemics where everyone turns inwards and starts policing themselves and has less contact with outsiders. And you can see this is quite, it's quite a powerful narrative because you start policing people, policing spaces, who should be there and who shouldn't be there. So from supermarkets, I was in a very middle-class establishment. I felt policed, right? But then I went to a working-class one, do what you want, <laughs> do what you want, walking around, getting my sweets, boom, 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 not a problem. But in certain spaces, I was at a place I didn't have a mask on, so I could see people behaving differently towards me. I'm scared for the future. I'm worried about the future, especially in places like London. What you're describing, and this is kind of what I was trying to point to, was the way in which we've seen this before. We've seen this type of scapegoating of people. And it follows very kind of classic narratives. So Chantal's introduction where she said, you know, the good migrants... We know what the contours of that good migrant is. The contours of the good migrant are the person that contributes to the community, that gives, that's kind of integrated economically, that doesn't place demands on the state, but also probably doesn't expect the state to return anything to them. So the obligation of the state is entirely missing from that equation. Um, Whereas when you're a citizen, you, you might have some hopes that the state might reciprocate in some way. So we'd already seen that kind of narratives that you, you kind of describe playing out. You know, all of the stuff about, um, I don't know if you know about Project Kraken, which is basically a, a government-led, UK Home Office-led campaign, which is... Um, well, relies on members of the general public reporting perceived breaches of immigration control. Um, So it's things like down where I live in Kent, there are posters on the coast which uh, resemble, I suppose, uh, Second World War propaganda, which basically say things, you know, spotting unusual activity with pictures of boats arriving and, you know, boats arriving in unusual (laughs) places, you know, call this number. Um, and, And it is, it's, so, so, so those modes of surveillance, there is a danger that those get co-opted for the purposes of surveilling the lockdown. And I think people have very, very quickly lost sight of what this was about. So the introduction of what I would refer to as physical distancing, because I think social distancing is entirely the wrong way of describing it. Um, the imposition of physical distancing was to try and control the spread of a virus. And basically what they needed to do was they needed to limit people's contact with other people down to about 20% of what it would normally be. So that basically means limiting your contact by, you know, 80, perhaps let's say 90% at maximum, which most people have done. Um, So 
you know, taken as a cumulative thing, actually, probably this is exactly what's happened. And yet when people look out of their window and they see one person walking around the block a million times, you know, talking with somebody who may or may not be related to them, let's, let's be yeah. um, you know, it's like, oh, dear, oh, dear, look what they're doing. So quickly, to me at least, reveal the kind of moral basis on which they're making judgments without asking questions about people's various um, capacity in order to meet the lockdown, the people for whom it might just not be viable to actually engage in practices such as the ones that, that you and I are engaging in. And we have to be honest that, you know, we're probably quite well positioned to be good citizens for pandemic times purely because of our personal circumstances in many ways. You know, it makes, and I'll be very honest, and as I say in the article, actually lockdown has very limited material consequence for my life. And I think it's kind of important um, to recognise that that is a privilege, um, but that not everybody else is well positioned in relation Mm -hmm. to that uh, in order to kind of meet the requirements of this time. That lack of recognising privilege, both material, economic, cultural privileges that some people have, is just absolutely astounding. Like, like you, you mentioned the Second World War, Nicola. If you look at like the celebrations for VE Day last week, the same people celebrating on their street, clearly not doing quote unquote social distancing, being the same people that are policing and arguing about which citizens are being good citizens and condemning people for getting on the tube and going to work when they literally have to like I feel like that's why I feel so just exhausted right now a couple of reasons number one the government just being so shit number two like the the way the way people are policing um, other people that have less privilege and number three those people that have the privileges just showing zero introspection on how unevenly felt COVID-19 is and I feel like last Friday the bank holiday was just a real in your face example of that. Um, right, it's listen. really unsettling to, to see, to be honest. But you see, listen, if you're not from, listen, I'm from the bits, right? If you're not from the bits, I'm in Cheshire right now, right, Nicola? And I've seen the street parties, Union Jacks, there's so much space out there. You won't care what anyone else is doing in London in a flat. You won't, you don't care because you don't, that's not your world. It's so small. So when I just looked out my window and these people were so happy, I've never seen so many Union Jacks in one street. In one street, I was looking at a window and I was saying, please don't, please don't ask me to come over. You are the worst guest. I'll have an argument with all of you. But do you know what I mean? Like, but yeah, it's those two, it's how those two things can just exist in such, like, they're so polarized, yet they're so, like, pronounced right now. Like, how you can have this policing of marginalized people that have le- less mobility, less space have jobs that require them to be out and about, whilst at the same time you've got people celebrating some imagined identity. Like, I just find it absolutely astounding and almost like, I know we talk about, this is what we talk about in sociology, we talk about these things, but I just feel like the visceral nature of it right now is really hard to just live amongst. <laughs> What's interesting for me Sorry. is to live in, like, I'm in, well, in Sandbach, and it's not too far from Crewe, right? So Crewe's a post-industrial town. It's It's got one main employer. The main town, it's, it's empty. All the commercial leases are gone. And up the road, Sandbach, there's not one piece of rubbish. I've never seen one piece of rubbish. No homeless. It's policed in a certain way. And through the ordinances of local council and all this, this space, they've created a space where 
if you're a an outsider, you stand out. So my arrival, I swear to God, you can see people looking at the window when I walk in a dog. It's it's weird. Is that man no, social distance? Shanto, it's not even a worry ahead because there's so much space. So that's why I'm not a threat because there's so much space. You can do what you want, and I'm imagining mm-hmm. if when I go back home or in crew, you can't behave like that. Mm-hmm. Like you see, and it, and it's how people are policing this thing, like. Like I said, I went to Wait Rose, right? Everyone had fucking masks on. I've got B&M, no masks. You can do what you want. You can literally pick up anything and do what you want. And it's that, that class contrast, right? How people are policing it. It's so weird to see. But most people, I don't know if they're aware of it, but they just it's just normal to them. It's just how they exist. They've got money. I haven't. It's okay. I'm thinking about, about what you've both just been saying about this kind of how, how people can hold that contradiction together but we know that people live with contradiction and we know that they live through it and I suppose from my point of view what I'm what I'm interested in is yes it's you know there's there's a kind of individual action side of it but it's also like what that focus then uh, manages to mask what does it stop us from asking questions about what does it stop us from looking at and we have to remember that all of these practices have been over the last, well, let's just say over the last decade, since the coalition government came in, um, came into power, um, we started to see this ratcheting up of an ideology that is essentially increasingly exclusionary, increasingly isolationist, increasingly nationalist around a particular form of English nationalism. And so it's not surprising that coming out of the Brexit referendum, well, coming out of first austerity, coming through austerity, coming through Brexit, and then coming into COVID, that we would start to see that kind of ratcheting up of that narrative. And I think that the kind of banal celebration of English nationalism through um, bunting, I mean, this is what Anna Saha um, has spoken to me about before, about, you know, the, the kind of the symbolic power of bunting and its racist impact, um, for example, the village fate idea Mm. um that they're reproducing a banal nationalism that has been fed to them through the state that's fed to them i mean last night was the first first night i watched one of those press briefings for a few weeks and i was riding my exercise bike because i hadn't done enough exercise yesterday and i went faster than i've ever gone in my life and the reason (laughs) i went so fast i was absolutely furious just all of this bluster all of this keep alert. And you're absolutely right, Tiso, you know, the framing, that public health messaging, keep alert, keep alert for, for, for what, for an invisible virus to come and just like, anyway, <laughs> but, but kind of even like stepping back, the assurance of our elected prime minister, that, you know, they've made things absolutely clear, they're kind of bumbling around, full of, again, kind of wartime spirit, how we're pulling together, how supportive the government's being, all of these kinds of things without really providing any answers, what was pushing me on. But at the same time, you know that behind closed doors, they may have paused the immigration bill. They may have paused its progress through Parliament, but they haven't scrapped it. (laughs) They may have just judged that now might not be the right time to really push for a future skills-based migration system in a situation where everybody's attention is turning onto apparently low-skilled migrant care workers. Um, but it's just a pause. They haven't scrapped it. They'll be evaluating public sentiment towards this, thinking about uh, what to do next. And I wouldn't be surprised if, 
you know, after this, when we head into economic depression, um, when we go further and further, there will be bigger and bigger questions about who should have rights and access to what the state can provide. I mean, I think that the same people who are out there in the street, Chantal, celebrating VE Day are also the people who are making masks for hospital workers, for making scrubs for hospital workers. And I mean, to me, I, you know, I don't want to down, downplay the significance of what they're doing, because clearly this is important work. However, the real question is, why has the government not provided those resources for people? And those are the questions we should be asking. How we got to a state where the general public have to step in to community organise in a quite an apolitical way, let's be honest, um, in order to make up for things that we would ordinarily expect our government to have provided. Make it up, bang, nail on the head, right? I can't remember the geezer who said it. This geezer said, look, because it turns out in this crisis, the people that told you government wasn't necessary, it always was. Now it comes out to how big that government had to be. And these people that convince you that that part of government wasn't necessary, where are they now? And it's the fact that they've shrunk government to the point where about this kind of ideology of neoliberalism, they're so they're so hell bent on it, right? That even though the, it, there is a need for big government now, I can see they start using the uh, war phraseology of hawks and doves. The hawks are now saying, "Look, listen, the markets need to come back, and it'll be fine. Everything will be fine once the market comes back." No, no, this is not. We can see how it's gone wrong. But the, the insistence of free markets above all else, above big government, above society, even though Boris Johnson said there was such a thing society now, it flies in the face of this. And I don't understand why. I don't understand how people don't see it. Look at, look at how the phraseology everyone's using. I need to get back to work. I need to start earning money. That individualism is so rampant in people. It's all I need to do this. I need to do that. And I'm thinking, but isn't I think we, the, the, the framing is we at the moment because we're all in this. But the framing is... I need to do this. We need to get people back to work to help themselves. And I'm like, oh my God, it's, it's, can't you see it? <laughs> I feel like, I feel like just from both of your points, like thinking about what Mikola just said about how it just astonishing it is that the government haven't provided adequate PPE and also to people's just sort of embed, the embedded nature of neoliberalism within the personal and the social. Those two things together for me at the moment I can't believe people's reaction to those two things. I don't know why I thought this. Where is the evidence of it at the moment? But I I can't believe people have found ways to justify why the government can't provide PPE for doctors and healthcare workers and all key workers. And then I can't believe how individualistic people are already and how many people have died and these people have died and it didn't have to happen. Like, I can't believe people's reaction to that is still so individualistic. Like, well, I need to do this. I need to travel here. I need to buy this. I need to go back to work. And people even saying, like, whether it's in the papers or even amongst some peers, like people saying, oh, but we can't go on like this forever. And it's like, okay, so but that not going on like this forever doesn't mean going back to what it was before because that doesn't fucking work. (laughs) I just, I just, my frustration or my lack of ability to put into words my frustration is that people don't seem to be getting it still. And even if they are getting it, they're deciding, 
well, these people need to die so I can live. One of the things that I found quite comforting in these times um, has oh, been... Oh, yes, <laughs> well, well, it's comforting and it's not. It's comforting. Um, and it has really helped me to think three things. Has been going back to um, Stuart Hall and policing the crisis and thinking about what the questions were that they were asking then. And and actually what it's made me realise, you know, is, and, and, and I think that you see this a little bit in Satnam Verdi and Brendan McGeever's paper about Brexit as well, is that it's entirely understandable that at a point like this, where what appears to be happening is an absolute political crisis, that actually the government would start to ramp up their own campaign justifying their ideology justifying their position okay and what it shows is that they think that they are under threat and I think that that's a kind of an important point you know after 10 years of an essentially conservative government that has been you know pushing an economically reductionist model uh, of society uh, which kind of forgets about uh, the social, the cultural, all of these types of things that erodes the value of the social sciences, uh, for example, um, that we would get to a stage where this is a tipping point. And there are, you know, society, as we saw with the Brexit referendum and what's happened afterwards, is incredibly polarised. That contradiction was already there. It was already embedded within the public domain, it, you know. So it's not that it was new, that contradiction, but what happened was it was kind of aggravated. Somebody was poking a stick at it very gently. And, and to my mind, it's clear that particularly around questions of migration and citizenship, the UK Home Office played quite an important role in, you know, they were testing the limits really of how far that they could push these discussions around who could come into the country or not, how much they could get the general public to accept. And actually, Brexit was a test of that because it showed that they could actually go quite far with that. Yes, Mikola, you've said exactly what I was just trying. That's what I mean. That's what I'm that's what I'm really struggling with, how far they're able to push the public. Yeah, I think there's that. But I think that the other thing is that, you know, we're looking on and we're seeing all of this. And it's become, it has become more and more bizarre. I mean, at least we look across the Atlantic to what's happening over there. And there will be a larger number of people asking questions going, well, do you know what? This just doesn't seem quite right. Um, And what that does is, and this is where this kind of, you know, the thing that's giving me comfort comes from, is that that opens up the space for an alternative future. It opens up a space for people to intervene and to offer an alternative. This might be the moment. And that's, yeah. sorry, I just slammed, I just slammed no. it down. <laughs> and I know this might be the moment where we could radically change understandings. But we always have to be aware that all of that past is not just going to disappear. Right, Michaela, I would... Listen, we sit all the time and I'm banging on about this is opportune time to do to have an alternative, right? But I was reading again, again, like you said, the police in the crisis. I think it's quite apt to what's happening right now. And you know where Stuart Hall talks about the kind of engagement of that secondary third, how different levels engage in rationing up coercion. So see, when you're talking about looking at immigrants, so Nigel Farage, for example, is doing the kind of beach watch on his beach for immigrants, Right. So you've got all these second and third level influencers taking the government message and turn it into informal language, which the public eat up 
Like Nigel Farage is, he's on the beach with no people. It's a, in the in the daytime. There's no one coming in, and he's like, I sat ahead, I sat outside last night. No, you never, Nigel. <laughs> no, you never. But the public eat that narrative up, and it reinforces that coercion to kind of we need to protect our borders. It becomes common sense in effect, and it's quite scary. So so much so that I've had conversations with some of my friends, and they said to me, Tiso, do you believe that black people are dying more from COVID than white people? I said, Yeah, it's a fact. He said, No, it's not. I'm like. This is what we're up against. I try to see the potential of an alternative. But when I see what we're up against, right, and the kind of the way social media has been working and the government has, doesn't have to do much. For example, it will say something like stay alert. That's so ambiguous, so vague, it can be interpreted in so many different ways. And that's the, and that's the power of it all. So the coercion comes not from government doing much, just by saying little tiny words like keep alert. What does that mean? Like, who? Who are we keeping that alert for? And invariably, once you give a face, so China has become the face of keeping alert. Invariably, foreigners become the, the target of keeping alert. Maybe Who's next? And so what, some of the advice they gave was, stay alert, wash your clothes. Who, who says things like that? How do you know someone's washed their clothes? Like, when you're going to school, all kids wear a school uniform. Can you imagine the kids getting picked on in the playground because you have to wear the same clothes every day? Well, it looks like the same clothes. How does social c- controls work? It's so insidious, so sly that we sit here all day. This is our job. In fact, we like the critical gaze. I love it. I love it. Do it all day. But most people don't give two fucks, man. The enormity of the project can be overwhelming. I appreciate that. But there are, I mean, I was listening this morning to another podcast, uh, the mm. Weekly Economics podcast, where they were talking about mutual aid and talking about how recognising, you know, that there's some really important work being done by mutual aid organisations, but also the importance of reminding people of the radical history of, of mutual aid, of kind of repositioning it in, in that radical history, rather than permitting it to continue under this kind of big society that has been more um, apolitical, to be, as I, as I said before. And I think that when you look around you'll find that there are more people who are trying to engage on, a, on, on the project of an alternative future. And yeah, it's not going to be easy. And I, I'm not sure that the battle lies in, 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 in persuading individuals. I think the project's much bigger than that. And this is where, you know, we need, we need, we need a viable left. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, and, and this is where it would have been really good if there were actually really strong trade unions, right? So, yeah, um, so, so it's never going to be the project of one individual. It's going to be the project of communities of people coming together because they believe in an alternative. Um, and that's, I mean, it's a long and drawn out project. You know, it's clear that that project wasn't completed. Uh, you know, the project that Stuart Hall set out to 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 do or or became known for doing. Um, and, you know, if we can be a thorn in the side, then perhaps that's what we should be aiming for. Love that. Brilliant. Like that. I'm a fool. I'll be a fool. I can I'll be a fool. I'll be a fool. Thank you so much for joining us, Nicolai. Always absolutely brilliant. Thanks for listening, guys. Stay safe and we'll be back again next week. Bye.